What keeps me engaged in the conservative Anabaptist vision? What is a conservative Anabaptist to do when there are no healthy Anabaptist churches in his community? And do all the people who attend a church need to hold to the same doctrinal beliefs? I'm Asher Whitmer, and welcome to Unfeigned Christianity. continues to be a crazy time to be alive and to be in the world with all that's going on with COVID right now, COVID-19. I'm sure most of you are, I'm guessing most are experiencing what we're experiencing here in Southern California, where we are restricted as far as gathering together and even how much we can go out. At this point, we can still go out and take walks and hikes and gather at the park and hang out with family. I shouldn't say gather. We cannot gather, but at the park, we can be as a family. And But it's just a crazy time of life. And I trust that you have been able to find ways to be productive and, and stay engaged with either relationships or even just growing personally while you're homebound. Um, today, I'm going to do something a little different. Um, Every month, I have a podcast exclusive for my patrons, and I, I will take questions that they've submitted and have them vote on which ones they want responded to. There were 10 questions they voted on, and I selected the top five, and then I recorded an episode responding to the top five questions. Now, the top three questions, or, or three of those questions, had specifically to do with the Anabaptist Church, um, let, let me just read them for you. It was The first question was, what is keeping me engaged in the conservative Mennonite vision, mission? And then what is a Mennonite to do? And I, I just made it broader for any Anabaptist. What is an Anabaptist to do when there are no healthy Anabaptist churches to attend? And then do all people who attend a church need to hold to the same doctrinal beliefs, outside creedal beliefs? Um, I, I decided I'll take those three questions and make a podcast in and of themselves. And so I'm going to share with you that part of the episode, the whole episode, where I respond to uh, five total questions. The final two questions are, if I find someone who's been looking at porn, what should I do? And then why aren't people getting married as young as they used to? If you want all the questions, that's a part of the Patreon membership. But for this episode, I'm going to respond to the first three. What is keeping me engaged in the conservative Mennonite vision? What is a Mennonite to do when there are no healthy Mennonite or Anabaptist churches to attend? And then do all people need to attend a church? Do all people who attend a church need to hold to the same doctrinal beliefs? We're going to discuss those. And then I would love to hear your feedback if you have any thoughts and questions. With that, I would love if you're listening via iTunes if you could rate the the podcast and if possible, leave a review. A couple episodes ago, I said that I would 
read off anybody who reviews the podcast i would read it publicly i don't know if that scares you or or thinks oh yeah it'd be kind of fun um so whether it's a positive review or a negative review uh, as it stands today i have 18 ratings most of them are five star believe it or not i'm gonna four star three star and i got one review this actually comes from december so it's a little old but it's a three-star rating, and the, the title is Too Much Rambling. I have listened to hundreds of different podcasts. Yours caught my attention by the topics of the episodes and due to my Mennonite background. When I turn on a podcast, I am listening for the guest interview and topic content. So far, each episode has taken too long to get to that. I'll tune in a couple more times, a couple more, but may choose to drop it from my list if it remains the same. Best wishes. Thank you for that feedback. Um, I remember getting it back in December and was somewhat amused because that's actually something I really, it really annoys me about podcasts is how many podcasts, there's a lot of podcasts that I listen to where it can go a half hour before they even get to the interview. Forty. I remember um, one podcast here a couple years ago, I think it was Relevant podcast i don't know if you listen to relevant podcasts or not but uh they had someone on there i had friends who recommended it to me and i noticed a an author that was they were going to interview and i really wanted to listen to it so i turned it on to while i mowed the lawn and it took me 45 minutes to mow the lawn and they, they weren't done joking by the time i had gotten done mowing the lawn and i never got to the the interview and so it it really does annoy me as well um and so I'm sorry if I ramble too much. I think all of my podcasts so far have been, with the exception of two, there's two podcast episodes where they were, it actually went closer to like 15 or 20 minutes till I got to the main content. But most of them have been within five minutes, I think actually within three. So this is actually getting a little long here. But uh, So I'll keep trying to hone that in and get to the point so I don't waste your time because I that annoys me as well. So anyways, thanks for leaving that feedback. If you want to rate and review the podcast, I would love to hear your feedback and I will read it publicly here as well. So without any further ado, I'm going to jump into the questions submitted by my patrons. So here we go. Number one, what is keeping me engaged in the conservative Mennonite vision and mission? It's kind of an interesting question. I, I hadn't really ever thought about it. Um, the person who submitted this, uh, we've had a little back and forth, but um, he has expressed he grew up in a conservative Mennonite, conservative Anabaptist background. I don't know it specifically, but obviously he's been kind of wrestling with some of what he grew up with. And, and particularly, I think um, just, I think, this is probably true for a lot of us, actually. It's, it's not so much the specific doctrines, maybe, that we disagree with or are uncomfortable with, although that may be true as well. But a lot of what we struggle with may actually be more the method or the um, way of doing relationships, the way of church functioning that we struggle with. And then we, we kind of disengage and we struggle with continuing on or what's the point and i can definitely identify with bumping into those issues 
So it's, it's not just you who might struggle with that. But I guess just off the top of my head, what keeps me engaged is just the fact that I am conservative Mennonite. Like I'm conservative Anabaptist. My wife and I have grown up in this branch of the Christian church. And, and at this point, we don't see ourselves as anything different. Um, and, and so because that's the church that we are a part of, because that's the branch of the church that we fellowship with, um, we care about it. We care about the people. We care about the next generation. We care about our own local body. And we care about the impact that our branch, our particular member of the larger body of Christ, the particular part of the body that we are. I don't know if we're the, the feet or the, the ears or the eyes what part of the body of God's global body we are, but we care about the impact we're having in the overall mission of the global church. And so I think it comes kind of naturally. Obviously, my, my dad was ordained six months before I was born. So I have grown up in the church, and he's been a pastor all of my life. And so I'm familiar with church leadership i'm familiar with church struggles and and now as as an adult and a married man and and being a part of uh different aspects of leadership and ministry myself um there are things that i definitely agree with definitely align with and then there are things that i'm burdened by and things that i i desire growth in and so a lot of it just comes from I guess a a heart to to see people grow and to see people meet uh, Jesus at a deeper level than before. Um, so I'm not entirely sure. I haven't. I didn't ask like where this question came from. As far as if he thinks I should just leave and do something else. Um, you know, it's it's been interesting. The more this is something my wife and I have talked about. Um, in the last number of months, I, I well, on and off the last number of years, I think, but um, more specifically the last number of months, even a few weeks, um, just the, the more the, the public blogging and writing that I've done and the broader exposure that I've gotten, you bump into the fact that there are many different types of conservative Mennonites or conservative Anabaptists and so I think like I grew up in northern Minnesota it's a kind of a small corner of the Anabaptist world my wife grew up in Colorado again another kind of small corner of the Anabaptist world we did not grow up in Ohio or Indiana or Lancaster uh, even some other yeah Ontario or you know some other places where there might be higher concentration of conservative Anabaptist people. And so our churches were unique. They are unique. Um, we're now living, we we live here in Southern California, and we're a part of LA Road. The LA Road, it, it's an acronym, stands for Los Angeles Real Life Opportunities and Discipleship, the name of our church and, and ministry here in, in Los Angeles. And we've spent three years in Thailand working under IGO, Institute for Global Opportunities. And so we're we're we see ourselves as conservative Anabaptists. Um, that's our theological persuasion, and 
even our lifestyle has been highly shaped and influenced, obviously, by the conservative Anabaptist culture, at least the, the parts of it that our parents passed on to us. But we do bump into the reality that there's great swaths of conservative Anabaptist people that we would look quite liberal to, or we might even sound or behave as if we're not conservative Anabaptists. And some people probably would not associate us with conservative Anabaptists. I don't know. Um, and so something that I've been thinking about recently is like, what constitutes conservative Anabaptism? What is it, you know, certain rules that a church has? Um, is it certain beliefs that people, when people embrace those beliefs and you're considered conservative Anabaptism, is it a certain way of life? Is it geographical location? Um, and I don't, you know, that's really kind of hard to, to define. There's a lot of variety, even among Anabaptism. We all know that. Uh, there's some Anabaptist churches would ordain homosexuals. Other Anabaptist churches won't even be on the grid and they drive horse and buggy, right? And so there's, there's huge diversity, even among conservative Anabaptists. Um, I would basically just say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not conservative Anabaptist in the sense of what someone, if you're looking at conservative Anabaptism, according to Pennsylvania or Ohio, I probably look kind of liberal. I call myself when I, when I look at, I've, my family, my experience is quite broad. I have attended churches that are totally non-Anabaptist. I have uh, participated, uh, interacted with people who are Protestant or even even people from Catholic background who are born again, believers, walking with the Lord and um, experienced relationships with Christians internationally who don't even really necessarily work in those frameworks and going to currently going to a non-anabaptist school like it's it's a regular protestant school maybe maybe kind of neo-anabaptist in some ways and so i'm i've got a pretty wide spread as far as experience and when i look at theological persuasion i am would definitely consider myself conservative anabaptist um and one of the one of the i guess the things that I've been thinking about is maybe a better term is historical Anabaptists. That maybe sounds a little pretentious, but I think there are a lot of Anabaptist groups, both on the progressive side and on the extreme conservative side, that has lost the the kind of the same vision and heart that historically Anabaptists would have been after. Anyways, that's just kind of I'm kind of rambling why I would consider myself conservative Mennonite. And so then why do I stay engaged with it? It's kind of a natural outflow of that because I care about the church. I care about people and I want them to walk closer with Jesus. I want them to know God deeper. And, you know, it's it's been kind of interesting. Um, I don't know how many of you do the uh, Enneagram, but I have come out very clearly in any test that I take, I come out a one. And then when I listen to 
other people talk about the Enneagram, I'm a very distinct one. And the one is the improver and is constantly like what motivates him is how can, how can I do things better? How can I improve myself? How can I feel like I did something meaningful when I leave it better than when I first came? And so I, that has kind of put to words also part of, I guess, why I have a heart, why I write about some things and why I tackle issues. Some people have thought that I like stirring the pot or like controversy, and that's actually not the case. I get, I get kind of shaken up with controversy and I, I can get uh, sweaty and short of breath when, when I sense that there, you know, I just wrote about something that's going to be really controversial and I didn't realize that or something. Um, there's even been stuff that I've written that sat unpublished for the better part of a year um, before I published it just because I knew it would probably be kind of controversial. But what compels me to enter those arenas or those topics is that we, we've got to do better. We've, we've got to grow. We've got to get closer to God. We've, we've got, we can't just let this elephant in the room. We've, we've got to talk about it. We've got to get it on the table. Like if we're going to become better as people, if we're going to walk with Jesus in a more intimate, more holistic way, we've got to talk about this. And I think that's a lot of what motivates me. I'm not saying that to say I do it perfectly or that I have indeed improved the church, but rather to show like that's kind of what motivates me in my imperfect and broken ways. So that took a lot of time. Let's let's move to the second question. What is a meno to do when there are no Mennonites? Meno is how the the question was submitted here, but it's standing for Mennonites. What is a Mennonite to do? And I'm gonna broaden this to Anabaptists. Some people will will be stickler, um, because I'm gonna use it kind of synonymously. Mennonite, Anabaptist. So there might be Beachy Amish that are listening, or German Baptists that are listening. Um, that would probably kind of all identify or brethren kind of all identify with this particular uh question and this really is is probably true for anybody whatever church denomination you're you're from whatever you grew up in what do you do when there are no healthy in this case mennonite or anabaptist churches to attend uh, this person I said all these questions are anonymous, by the way. This person has had some really difficult and unhealthy experiences growing up in the Mennonite church. He's coming at it from a place of appreciating at a theological level what he's been raised in, but wrestling with the fact that the actual community and functioning of the Mennonite churches in his community aren't real healthy. And so he's wondering what he's supposed to do. This is a question that I can definitely identify with. Um, Again, as I kind of alluded to before, I, at my theological persuasion is, is Anabaptist, um, and I appreciate what I've been taught. My dad is a pastor, conservative Anabaptist pastor. I've gone to Sharon Mennonite Bible Institute. I've gone to Institute for Global Opportunities, SMBI, and I go for all those that know the, the acronyms. And I, I, I have a lot of appreciation for what I've been taught at those schools. They were foundational in, in my spiritual formation. The things that, that make me sad um, and even 
even the things that make me look at other Christians and other denominations and see like how do they do things to see if there's a better way is the is the way we function. It's not so much our beliefs. And and I guess I, I do have one question that I always lingers in my mind, and that is how what beliefs how how do you know when the way that something is functioning and the way that things the methods that are used and the way things are lived out how do you know when that is the direct result of particular beliefs and i would say typically i would say it always is but there are some beliefs that i'm like wait a minute that that isn't inherently a direct result of that belief um so anyways i say all that to say that there's you know there's the functioning versus the theological persuasion i'm pretty much on board on a lot of the theological persuasion now i would differ again as i mentioned before i think there's a lot of conservative anabaptists today that that are quite uh i think early anabaptists would show up today and wonder a little bit about what their focus is um, because they seem to have strayed just I, I would say that's on the conservative traditional side and on the liberal progressive side but for the most part i'm there theologically it's just the functioning i'm not necessarily there and so what is someone supposed to do what what are we supposed to do if we feel like there's our church is unhealthy and there's no other healthy church healthy mennonite church around but we we appreciate the Mennonite theology, Anabaptist theology we've been given. I've got just a few questions, a few questions of clarification, and then a few things that I would like to point out. Obviously, these are it's no formula. It's just to help you process as, you, as you're thinking through this. First of all, my first question is, what are we calling healthy? What constitutes a healthy church? No conflict? Is there no conflict? You, you've bumped into a conflict in your church? Uh, Half of you think you should have a youth group. Half of you think youth groups and Sunday schools are evil. Is If we could eliminate stuff like that, then is that healthy? Um, what uh, Are we saying healthy is, is the sense that everybody, nobody feels alone. Everybody feels cared for. Whenever you show up at church, people are talking with each other. People are caring for each other. Nobody ever goes through a week really struggling whether that's with something physical and material or even just kind of emotionally and spiritually without others knowing about it or inquiring about how they're doing how each other's doing is that what we call healthy are we working with other churches in our local community and together we're impacting our local immediate community even people who are not pursuing jesus who don't necessarily want anything to do with the gospel um do we call it healthy when a church is engaged in its community what are we calling healthy i think that's that's a huge thing to clarify what do we consider healthy and i will i will point i'll come back to this in a little bit what things that i would look at and see healthy um just as since we're here i 
think many of us mistake conflict for unhealth. And the reality is that when a body, sorry, I'm bumping my mic. Hope that's not making too much noise. When the body, and I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the physical body. When a physical body is healthy, it doesn't mean there's no conflict, right? So if a physical body is healthy and a guy falls off the roof of a house, he's going to feel pain, right? If he doesn't feel pain, then something's not healthy. But then there's also when that broken leg has healed or the broken neck or whatever it is, when it has healed, if it's, if it's properly healed, the pain is gone, right? Uh, the leg is, can function again. It's strong. Um, or the neck is broken for good and he's paralyzed. And then, then we have to ask the question, is that health? Is that healthy if, if a body is paralyzed? And what does it look like to function as a healthy body when, when you're paralyzed? Um, and to take from that allegory onto the church, just because there's conflict, uh, Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 11 9, uh, verse 19 says that he believes there's conflict among them because there needs to be conflict so that those who are genuine can be approved. Christians who are faithful, sincere followers of Jesus Christ are approved in the midst of conflict. I got to take a swig of water here. So health, I do not look at the lack of conflict being a sign of health. In fact, I'll be honest with you, if there is no conflict, if it almost seems too nice, too comfortable, I have red flags that go up. If everybody's kind of being nice to get nice to each other and everybody's smiling and it almost feels like you have to smile, you have to be excited, then I'm like, okay, what's actually riding under the surface? This feels like pretension or facade or something. But anyways, so what are we calling healthy? Let's clarify that. The other thing is, are we talking about a period of time or for the long haul? So you're wondering, there's no healthy churches. What are we supposed to do? Are you asking for the next six months, even one to two years? Or are you talking about for the next 10 years indefinitely? We want to live here in this community and raise our family because my response would be different. Uh, another question that I would have is, do you know anyone who has ever dealt with a similar situation? So do you know someone who has valued the theological beliefs of, say, an Anabaptist church, for instance? but doesn't know of a church that's healthy for them to attend. Can you talk with them and can you get feedback from them? And so then kind of going back to, are we talking about a period of time or for the long haul? If we're talking about less than a year, I would say just, just find a, a local church and, and connect with it. You don't have to be even theologically persuaded in the same way. My family spent uh, three months, I think it was, in Southern California during one of my dad's sabbatical years. And we visited a number of different churches, but uh, there was a Presbyterian church that we attended for a number of, of weeks during that time. And that was actually a really good experience for me. We also visited a an Indian church that probably has very similar theological persuasion as Presbyterian. I'm not sure what denomination they would consider themselves, but 
uh, we really enjoyed our time with them. And yeah, there's differences, but then there's a lot of things that we can learn and grow from. And so if it's a, a period of time, just a short period of time, even if it is just a year or two, I, I would say find, find a good church that you guys connect with and, and plug in there. If we're talking about for the long haul, though, then I would ask some, some deeper questions to process. And, and one of those is, what are our values? So for Teresa and I, or our family, what are our values? What do we want our children learning and growing up with? Um, obviously, that starts first and foremost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want them to know Jesus. We want them to know the gospel. What makes it difficult is that every church, I, I don't know of any church that doesn't say they don't want to know Jesus, right? And so then some some deeper questions. What what are our values? How how do we handle scripture? How does this church handle scripture? How do I want my children, our children, handling scripture? What's important to us? Not because like obviously I think one of the things we should sort through as we're asking these questions is okay, maybe something's important to us that isn't like according to the biblical narrative, shouldn't be important to us. Like maybe we really think passing on the family business is really important. Uh, maybe that shouldn't be. Like maybe there's some there, there's a greater inheritance to pass on, um, and that should be our focus and what we're engaged in and focused on. But when it comes to choosing a church, if a church is primarily youth centered and parents disengage from the youth. It's probably churches that I've interacted with where they have high youth programs and high adult programs. You connect with other adults almost at a deeper level. And our youth have a lot of good friends. But then there's also this conflict that can develop between parents and children. And so that's just, it's not saying you shouldn't attend a church like that or that you shouldn't, that you can't navigate through that. But something that's important to my wife and I is that we are training our children, that we are, have good, healthy relationships with our kids. Obviously, they need other friends. They need other adults speaking into their lives, and we need other adults speaking into our lives. But it, it would be sad to us to just kind of jump into what's, what feels like a predominantly kind of Western evangelical way of doing church where it's just kind of goodbye youth they're off doing their thing and and we don't have that same interaction we're not walking them through the the scripture ourselves we're not processing values and in what jesus teaches us together as a family um, so those are the things that are important to us well what what are your values decide that and then another question is are you okay with your children being influenced by other types of christians and that sounds kind of like, wow, that's on the nose question. Like, so what if we say no? So no, I don't want you other Christians influencing my children. But I asked the question simply to, to acknowledge the fact that if you're going to plug into another church for a long haul, they will be influenced. Even if you as a couple are strong in your faith, and, and you envision discipling them 
for the rest of your life and you have good family relationships, your kids will be influenced by other, by the Christians that you are, are walking with, that you are interacting with. Because, you know, my, my wife and I, we're adults and we're interacting even here in LA. Like, so we grew up kind of on fringe conservative Anabaptist circles, but here in LA now, we're even more on the fringe of, you know, there's not many Anabaptists around out here in California, especially conservative Anabaptists. And so we might remember conversations that we had with other people in our youth, with other Anabaptists, conservative Anabaptists who were life-giving and modeled what it looked like to have a relationship with Jesus. We remember those as we're processing or, or our times at SMBI or IGO. We're remembering what things we were taught. But our kids are growing up in a completely different setting. And even though they're talking with us, it doesn't always have the same impact to hear it from a parent as it does to hear it from another believer who values or has the same perspective or a similar perspective as your parent. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that it's wrong. Like I personally, one of the things that I value is learning from other types of Christians. But that's something we need to process as a couple. It's something, are you okay with the fact that if, if your goal is to get your kids to look and behave and just kind of continue on what you are right now, then you better hold up and find a community that emulates exactly what you are and you better just stick there. Because if, if you open it up to other types of Christians, then your children will probably end up looking and behaving quite a bit different than you. And that might, that might be good. It might not be good. It's just things I think we should think about and process. Things my wife and I process together. And then ultimately, I think um, that we should choose life over death. Now, that's very vague. And I actually personally don't like the term life. Oh, what are you pursuing? I just want life. I want to feel like... But those are phrases. And it's a concept that is iter reiterated throughout Scripture. And so just to help us sort through, okay, what is life over death? What does life look like? Um, if you look at Ephesians 1, I'm just going to try to flip here quick. Uh, Ephesians 1. I think we can see from the book of Ephesians and some, some other books I'm going to reference that um, one thing that life shows you, you know there's life there when people have vibrant walks with God. I'm just reading from Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Um, Ephesians 2 talks about, well, actually Ephesians 1 goes on to talk about being seated at his right hand. Ephesians 2 talks about being made alive in Christ, and that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And so I think life, if you're looking for a community, a church that has life, 
I think one of the marks of life is that people have vibrant walks with God. This is not a show. You don't see people coming in and then they become a different person for those few hours Sunday morning. Or if you have a Bible study, they, they take on kind of a different persona. But they just are. And they have a walk with God and they have a vibrant relationship with God. And they're sharing what God is teaching them, not back when they were first saved, but they're sharing what God has taught them this week or sharing what God has convicted them of or even um, being honest about their own failures and struggles. Um, those are signs that they are walking with God, that they have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and that they're feasting and nurturing and being nurtured by Christ in their relationship with him. Another thing is that they have gospel-saturated relationships. So if, if we're looking for church, what is life over death? They have a vibrant walk with God, and they have gospel-saturated relationships. Again, we, we see this, that we are being built up all, all throughout Ephesians, the concept of being built up in Jesus Christ, right? Uh, Galatians, it's kind of the negative side. Galatians has lost, sorry, I've got my actual Bible here, not an electronic Bible, so you hear the pages turning. But um, Paul says in verse 6 of Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in grace, in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. And Paul is confronting the people of Galatia because they have forsaken their first love. They have forsaken that vibrant walk with God. They have forgotten the gospel. But one of the things that we see in the book of Ephesians is how the gospel transforms our relationships. And we're going to get into this in the next question a little bit further. But all of a sudden, instead of being me-centered and instead of having clicks or instead of um, just kind of a group of people who all have similar backgrounds and similar values and similar perspective on life. We are other-centered. We're, we're deferring our own pleasures or our own preferences for the good and benefit of other people. And that's what it looks like to have a gospel-saturated relationship. Or even Ephesians 3 talks about the, the, um, the wall being torn down between the Jew and the Gentile. And we have ethnically diverse relationships because the gospel, when we have gospel-saturated relationships, we realize that Jesus Christ brings people of different ethnicities into relationship with each other. And where it's mutually benefiting, we're also mutually learning from each other and, and growing from one another. So life, I have four signs of life, and two of them are a vibrant walk with God, gospel-saturated relationships. The third is a pursuit of holiness. Going back to Ephesians 1, it says, that, uh, Paul is saying, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And this, this concept of holiness or holy, to, to be something to be holy is set apart. And so we are holy and blameless in him. We are set apart. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are set apart. We are separate from the world. We are something different. We, we have aligned with Jesus Christ. And so what does it look like to have a pursuit of holiness? Sometimes I think we can, we can skew that a little bit and think, oh, you know, then I should 
you know, I should do all kinds of fasting or I should never watch movies or I should only read my Bible and, and never read fiction or something like that. I, I don't know where we come up with some of these things. Actually, I have theories based on church history, but the pursuit of holiness is, as I defined it, is just the, the realization that in my relationship with Jesus Christ, I am going to take on a new persona and I'm going to begin reflecting a completely different image. And so my goal, my goal is 2 Corinthians 3.18, where I am gazing, I, th I think I got the right verse, I don't have it in front of me, where I'm gazing on the glory of Jesus Christ so that he transforms me. Or we can think of Romans 8, where we are being conformed as I suffer through the pain and the turbulence and the corruption of this world, as I resist that, resist to function out of the flesh, where I just give in and, and have a way of thinking that is not in line with Christ's way of thinking, when I resist that and instead submit to God's design, I am conformed into the image of his dear son. That's what the pursuit of holiness looks like. Being renewed in the minds, all of a sudden my affections, my desires are changed and I'm going to be known as a man who is safe, who's not motivated by lust. I'm going to be known as a man when given power, doesn't use power for my own benefit, but for the good and the, the benefit of others. Um, I'm going to be known as someone who's gentle, who bears the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm going to be known as someone who is constantly gazing on Jesus. And that's my infatuation and not my job or my career or my identity. And all of these things are things that I'm speaking specifically of myself as well as any of us. But a church that is has life and is life-giving is going to have a People are going to have vibrant walks with God, gospel-saturated relationships, and they're pursuing holiness. They're not neglecting it. They're not just saying, oh, I'm covered by grace, and then just doing everything that their unsaved neighbor would do. They're pursuing holiness. When they watch a movie, they evaluate it in light of God's values. And... And then we, we accept his good as good and his evil as evil. The fourth thing is that there's active engagement in community and discipleship of the world. Again, we see this in Ephesians 3, that the church, the great mystery, the church is revealing to the spiritual world and then also uh, to the physical world, to other believers, other Gentiles, the, the inheritance that we have through Jesus Christ. Uh, Philippians, the Philippian church was praised for their perseverance in the gospel. They were working together as a church to, to in the work of the gospel. Um, obviously, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, we are called to make disciples. That's the mission of the church. I'm sure there's more signs of life. I if you have any feedback, um, any of your perspective you would like to share, I would love to hear that as well. But the four signs of life, vibrant walk with God, gospel-saturated relationships, pursuit of holiness, active engagement in community, and discipleship of the world. I think those, that's a good place to start. Now, let's go to uh, number three. Do all people who attend a church need to hold to the same doctrinal beliefs outside of creedal beliefs? This question, the person who asked this question, 
is wrestling with what does unity look like? Is it important for a local body to be unified in all in doctrinal beliefs? Are some doctrinal beliefs more important than others? What are those important beliefs? It's a great question. And I would say I'm, I'm going to give a just kind of an off-the-cuff answer and then I have some scriptures I'd like to delve into a little bit and, and parse through this a little further. So my off-the-cuff answer is that a lot of that should be decided from one local body to another. Some local bodies believe that they should be very unified all the way down to what type of music you listen to. Those aren't even really doctrinal beliefs necessarily, but then other churches are are quite open. You know, there's there would be some people who are, you know, maybe, the, the, I know of one church where they believe the leadership team should be on the same page, but the the church body can can be separate. It's just you won't if you don't embrace the the doctrines of the church leadership, then you won't be eligible for leadership. But it's not that you can't, you can be a member there. You can, that can be your church family. I think you can even teach Sunday school perhaps and participate in the service. You just won't be ever be a deacon or a pastor and so forth. Um, and that particular church is Presbyterian. And so how, how does that affect their, their, um, you know, if someone does not believe in baptizing babies, most Presbyterian churches that I know of would still uh, baptize babies or adults if they're new converts. And so I'm not, I don't actually know, like if that's something that you have to believe in order to be on leadership, maybe as a pastor, I don't, I'm not sure if it's mandatory for a elder or not. I know of an of an Anabaptist church that does not the, the the lead pastor I think embraces and teaches the the head covering, but it's not something that they feel everybody needs to believe in practice in some way. But they've let that up to local households, and I believe even on the leadership team there is variation in that. And so my off the cuff answer is just that. You got to figure that out as a local body. <laughs> Obviously, if you believe that everybody should be exactly in line with you and nobody else in the church believes that, then you're going to bump into some serious issues, right? Or vice versa. If you think, well, you know, it doesn't have to be. And that's something we hear in LA, our local church. We've processed even just kind of the evolution of a small church growing. You don't always anticipate it ahead of time, but we realize, oh, we got to we got to figure out, like, where are we as as a local body, as the leadership? What doctrines do we believe are important? What doctrines um, are not important? If you're going to join a church that already has that, you're you need to be aware of what those doctrines are that you're embracing, basically. And if you don't embrace them, then maybe you shouldn't join. I think it's. I think it's abusive to assume that I can join a church and just stay the same that I am. If I'm if I'm getting ready to join a church, 
I need to be aware of what that church believes, what that church embraces. It is incredibly unhealthy for me to enter into that church and expect that people will let me just be however I am. If if I don't if I don't realize that, you know, they all believe that you should not use instruments and then I enter that church and I mean this is really visible. It'd never be this way, but you know, then I go to lead they ask me to lead worship and I use my guitar or my wife and I play guitar and piano. Um, and they're like, oh, no, you can't do that. I should accept that. I should investigate stuff like that, right? Obviously, I'm, I'm kind of mixing. It's not necessarily doctrinal beliefs. Um, but what is that? You know, head covering. Where, where are you guys at on that? That stuff like that should be figured out because you shouldn't just go into a church and expect, assume that they're where you're at. You, you want to investigate that. Whoops, I'm bumping my mic again. So that you know what you're getting into. As a church, if you're there and, and maybe there's shifting, maybe there's changing beliefs, then I think it's important that you talk about that together. Don't be off isolated as separate households making your own random decisions and then deciding and, and a couple years down the road bumping into the reality, we're totally different. No, if you're, if you're rethinking, Something you say, you know, I, ch- I know our church is, is kind of here, but I've been studying this part or I've been listening to this preacher or this, I've been going through this course or whatever, and, and I'm not sure what I think about this anymore. Like, talk to your pastors, talk to other brothers and sisters in the church, take that journey together. At least that way, it's not going to be as painful and it won't feel as, you won't feel as rejected if people decide, you know what, I don't think we are there right if you if you decide to change and you never really talked about it with people and then they discipline you or something i mean to them it looks like you just are willfully doing something different almost looks rebellious and so talking about it and taking them on that journey is a part of preparing them for the fact that you know what we're changing on the other hand um for if 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 I'm changing and I'm talking with my church about it, it's not going to look like I'm just being rebellious. Does that make sense? They're, they're not going to feel like I'm just whatever, do, going off and doing my own thing. So those are kind of off-the-cuff responses. But I, I would like to dive into what is unity because I, I really believe we struggle to grasp a biblical sense of unity. Either we have this concept of uniformity, unity looks the same, we all do the same, we're all uniform together, or we have this concept that somehow we should just be able to all believe ourselves, whatever we want, kind of a Buddhist mindset, where whatever's good for you is good, we're just not going to touch on each other's toes, we're all going to smile and praise Jesus and give hugs. That is actually not unity. Neither of those are unity. Um, if you look at Ephesians 4, we process or walk through Ephesians 4. Um, this is the chapter. So the first chapter, first three chapters of Ephesians are looking at what God has done to create and instill in humanity a new, a new humanity, a new way of life. Um, through Jesus Christ, he has done this work that has made humanity right with God and they can enter it through faith and then in their 
participation in their embracing by faith and through the grace of Jesus Christ, not by works, but by faith, they look to him and embrace his way and then go out and do the works that that God originally designed for them. And as they do this together, and as they break down the ethnic barriers of faith, they reveal this mystery to the gospel that anybody can be an inheritance of can get the inheritance of Jesus Christ, can be a part of that family, of that inheritance. Now, in Ephesians 4, it shifts and it's showing what it looks like then to live that out. Ephesians 4, you have the body of Christ and spiritual gifts. Ephesians 5, it delves into relationships, specifically marriage. Um, also, uh, uh, slave and, and master, and, and kind of your boss and servant. Then Ephesians 6, I think, is children and... Um, just spiritual warfare in general, those kinds of relationships. How do you live it out? How does it look like? What does it look like to live out life when I have been redeemed and I am a part of a new humanity that is made new by the Spirit within me? The beginning of this, Ephesians 4, Paul talks about that. He says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love. Notice, notice those words, humility. That means I'm not thinking highly of myself. I'm putting you first. So humility, gentleness. I'm not, this kind of gentleness and patience, you need patience to be gentle, right? If if you're an impatient person, you're not going to be gentle. People aren't going to move and aren't going to align fast enough. They're not going to improve quick enough and you're going to get gruff and aggressive. It's something I struggle with at number one. Oh, let's improve fast. Let's get this. But we're going to be patient and gentle. You can't be gentle and patient if you think you or the authority on everything. If you think you've got it all down. So humility, gentleness, patience, accepting one another in love. It does not say that you walk worthy of this by, you know, all making sure that you believe that you should wear a head covering or that you believe you should not go to war or that you believe you should never vote or that you believe the earth is young. It says with all humility, gentleness and patience accepting one another in love diligently keeping the unity of the spirit with the peace that binds us and then paul goes in there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope at your calling one lord one faith one baptism one god one father of all who is above all and through all and in all so there is a unity that exists already because of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God being poured out. And when we believe by faith, Ephesians 1 talks about how he puts, when you heard the gospel and believed, God gave us the Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation. So we all have this Spirit. When we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've heard it, we believe it, we have the Spirit. And there is unity because we have the Spirit. But that looks like something, according to Ephesians 4, verse 3, that is going to need to be diligently kept. So we diligently keep or maintain the unity of the Spirit. It means that we could, just as Paul in other books, uh, Romans, 
he walks through this quite aggressively that it's possible to live not out of the Spirit of God, even though I have the Spirit of God. And so there is this constant battle within us as believers, as born-again believers, being transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's possible to still live out of my flesh, and the flesh is just the man I am without Christ. Arrogant, not gentle, I'm not patient. I don't accept others unless you benefit me, right? That's walking in the flesh. And that's not going to be maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit is to walk in alignment with God's way, with God's Spirit. I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to be patient, accepting one another in love. And then you jump down. He goes through. He talks about the, the grace that has been given and, and how God has poured out gifts. Jesus who ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity, gave people, gave gifts to people. And so the spiritual gifts that we have, he's pulling from uh, Psalms, oh goodness, 118, I think. I don't have it here. I should have written that down, but that's a quote. It's a quotation from Psalms, Psalms 110 or Psalms 118, goodness, where it talks about the king who goes up, he ascends on high, and when he conquers, he brings the brings back gifts for his people and the spoil that is poured out on the people is a sign that they have conquered the enemy and so there's this powerful picture being played that the fact that there are spiritual gifts among the church is in fact the sign that jesus christ has conquered the enemy that's not what i was going to talk about i just really like that picture and you go down to to um verse 11, he talks about the different gifts that he's poured out, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, for the training of the saints in the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's faithfulness. Here we get a picture of unity that looks like it does not exist yet. It's something we reach as we're being built up by the varying gifts among us. So unity, it exists in the spirit, but it's possible. It's something that needs to be diligently kept because we could end up living out of our flesh and not out of the spirit. I could end up deciding, you know, I disagree with someone. I want a youth group and you think that's evil. And I default to my flesh and we start having this carnal competition and we're digging through scripture, trying to one-up each other. And we're not functioning in the unity of the Spirit anymore. We're not being patient. We're not accepting one another in love. We're not being gentle. We're not being humble. We're trying to get our way. And that's walking in the flesh. There's also this unity of the faith that is seems, because Paul's, at least the words that Paul uses, until we reach. So these gifts are poured out for the building up of the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. What is meant by in the faith? The knowledge of God's Son. That's clearly speaking of Jesus Christ. Growing into mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Does... Unity of the faith? Is the faith something that, okay, I once I believe that 
all women should wear a head covering, then you, that's the faith that we're talking about. Unity of the faith. I don't think that's consistent with the message of Ephesians. The faith that Paul is emphasizing and talking about is that while we were dead in our trespasses, God, because of his great mercy, raised us up. And we are seated. We are positionally seated with him in heavenly places. And that our faith is, because of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of God's Son, we are positionally seated with God in the heavenlies. And we can walk in contrast to the way of our flesh and walk out of the Spirit. And that's Christ's fullness being revealed in us. That's my understanding. That would be my interpretation. But all of that, just, just pointing to that there is this unity that exists in the Spirit but needs to be diligently kept. And then there's also unity of the faith. We're in the faith that needs to be achieved. Another passage to look at is Philippians 2. Whenever, whenever Paul talks about unity, it doesn't look like agreement. It looks like putting others first. Um, Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way. Thinking the same way. Oh, does that mean agreeing? Having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Oh, so we are supposed to. So if we don't agree that women should wear their head covering, or if we don't agree that the earth is young, we're not, we, we got to all agree on this, right? Well, let's see. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And he goes on to show us how Christ demonstrated that, how he was in the heavenlies, and he was God, but he decided not to grasp that. He's not going to claim his godness, his divinity. Instead, he becomes obedient to death. He gets down in the gutters with us. And so I, I believe that what Paul is saying is thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focus on the one goal, is that unity of faith. That Jesus Christ, despite our differences, despite our varying backgrounds, Jesus Christ has made us equal brothers and sisters. We are recipients of the inheritance in Christ. We are seated beside him. And what way should we think? Well, we should put others first, not ourselves first. What should be our goal? Not doing things out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility looking out for other people's interests and not just our own, caring for one another. This all shadows, by the way, the, the Old Testament law, the Torah, in caring for the orphan, the widow, putting them first, not using our, our um, societal status for our own benefit, but caring for other people, caring for the immigrant, being a light to the nations. And so, again, I would argue, I don't think Paul is teaching that 
I mean, obviously in Galatians, he talks about departing from a gospel. So there is a gospel, and the gospel of Jesus Christ making us seated with Christ, making us, um, giving us peace with God. But when he's talking about unity, and when he talks about thinking the same way, he's not talking about agreeing all the time, but rather that I am willing to set my preference or my opinion aside. I'm, I'm going to listen to you. Uh, we could point to Romans 14. I think that often gets a little misinterpreted personally, but a lot of people like to claim that passage, I'm the weaker brother, when they're trying to manipulate and get their way. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about manipulating to get your way. Paul's talking about setting aside my way because I care about you. Because I believe you have a valid opinion as well. This doesn't necessarily answer any questions. It makes it kind of difficult and tricky. John 17, 10 through 12, every, everything Jesus, Jesus praying to God, he says, everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. And I have been glorified in them. Speaking, glorified in them, speaking of his disciples, his people. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. And so Christ's prayer and Christ's goal is that we become one as brothers and sisters, as, as God and the Father are one. And I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with John, but what is a common refrain throughout the book of John? Jesus is, tr at least the first eight chapters or ten chapters or so, Jesus is convincing the Pharisees, or, or even just Jews in general, that he is God's son, and how does he often convince them that he is God's son? Because he does and says what the Father does and says, and he lives out what he sees the Father living out. And again, this, this concept of oneness being a yielding myself to you, Father. And so I think oneness looks like a yielding myself to my brothers and sisters. I'm not going to be independent and just demand my own way, but I yield to my brothers and sisters. We do not have time to go in this, but I, I would suggest that 1 Corinthians 11 doesn't have as much to do with submission as it has to do with traditions we are to practice that remind us of our place in Christ so that when we face conflict as a body of Christ, we remember where each other is placed with Christ. And the traditions are men not being covered, women being covered, and practicing the Lord's Supper together. There's a, there's a great mystery there, uh, a lot that I've got questions about. So I'm not I'm not gonna delve into, but that's something as I as I study First Corinthians eleven more, I think sometimes we miss it. Paul's not necessarily trying to teach submission; he's appealing on the authority structure 
for this tradition that is to be practiced so that we remember visual signs, things we do so we remember our place in Christ. That's a whole other topic. Um, but one thing I, I will close this thought on, this whole topic of churches and how much difference can there be and, and is it important if everybody believes the same thing. Hebrews 13 gives us some important things to remember because we, we often look at, you know, if, if you've been listening to me talking about um, considering others more important than ourselves and yielding to one another and not functioning out of the spirit, not functioning out of the flesh, demanding our own way, but functioning out of the spirit, maintaining the unity of the spirit of Jesus Christ. We are all together seated with Christ. The question is, so who gives direction, right? I don't have time to go into all the passages that that show the value of leadership within the church. Um, but there, that I mean, the pastoral epistles talk a lot about it. Timothy, First Timothy, talks a lot about leaders in the church and the concept of Paul, First and Second Timothy, Thessalonians. So there's others. I can't, I can't think of them right offhand. But the, there is structure there for church leadership. And then the writer of Hebrews says something that is important for those of us if we're not in church leadership. Or actually, let me rephrase that. It's important for all of us to remember. But there's this phrase here that I'd like to explore a little bit. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Obey your leaders. So part, what is our point of reference? You know, I think of if, if we're just going to defer to one another, no, I'm going to consider you more important. Then it's going to look like me and my wife trying to find a place to eat, right? Where do you want to go, babe? Oh, you know. What what do you want? Well, I don't know. I'm I'm not super hungry. You know what? You want Indian food? I know my wife always likes Indian food. Yeah, but we can, if you want a burger or something, we could have a burger. No, I don't care. What whatever you want. like, we're just we're not going to get anywhere, right? And so eventually, someone has to be kind of that point man that says, okay, this is this is where we're going. And God has given structure for leadership and it's not just a random leadership who just does whatever he wants in fact the writer of hebrews tells us 10 verses before what these leaders ought to look like he says remember your leaders this is verse 7 so obey your leaders was verse chapter 13 hebrews 13 verse 17 verse 7 says remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So this, this is the responsibility lies on us as leaders. Even, uh, even Paul, when talking in Timothy, he talks about, um, uh, sorry, let me find it here. Uh, for someone, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And that's smack in the middle of kind of a whole list of stuff that leaders are supposed to be emulating how you choose your leaders. 
So leaders are not just random people who have strong personalities and you choose them because they would they would do good. But rather they're, they're leaders who are leading their homes. They're leaders who are leading in gentleness, humility, patience, accepting one another in love. They're leaders who are teaching the word of God. They're leaders who are living a way of life and have a faith that is worth imitating. And so when those are our leaders, hopefully that's who we're choosing as leaders, then we obey them. We submit to them. That becomes our point. Okay, hopefully a good leader is going to be calling on the the body as a whole and recognizing the different giftings within the body, right? But then he's going to be the point. He's going to give the direction. He's going to be teaching. And we need to submit to that. Because he's trying. He's carefully watching over our souls. He's trying to shepherd us into that unity of faith. Obviously, I think the word is leaders. So it's not just one person, but the group of men who are hopefully emulating and modeling that oneness as a group. And then we as the rest of the body, we submit to them, obey them, because they are trying to shepherd us. And by the way, causing them trouble and complaining and rebelling against them doesn't help us any, right? I think that verse is often used to kind of give power to leaders. And that that would be an abusive way of interpreting that passage. Uh, An excellent essay to read for further input would be uh, Dwight Gingrich, Dwight Gingrich Online, or DwightGingrich.com. He has an essay on giving account for our use of Hebrews 13, 17. I think that's the title of it. And his kind of whole conclusion of it is, Pastors, teachers, I write as one who has served imperfectly as both a pastor and a teacher, we will be called to give account for how we lead the flock. Part of our leadership involves the teaching of the word of God, Hebrews 13, 7. This means that we will be called to give account for how we handle scriptures such as Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders. Are we ready to give account for how we use this verse? May we use this verse not to build up our power base, but to remind us of our own responsibility to serve. May our faithfulness, may our faithful lives make it easy for people to trust us and hence to be persuaded to join us in bearing the reproach of Christ. That's an excellent conclusion. It's an eight-page essay. I definitely recommend giving account for our use of Hebrews 13, 17 by Dwight Gingrich. But when it comes to church functioning, And do we all have to agree? No, we don't all have to agree. I think that's something we figure out locally as different bodies. But the question, if I am not in leadership, if I am in leadership, the question needs to be, am I modeling faith? Am I teaching the word of God? And then am I modeling a life with my family? Am I leading my family in that? And am I leading the broader brotherhood, the broader body? Am I modeling a life that is worth them imitating? If we're not in leadership, then our question needs to be, Can I submit to that? Can I defer to my leader? And can I trust? Do I trust my leader that he's trying to shepherd us, that he's doing his best to shepherd us into the unity of faith in Jesus Christ? Those are kind of my takeaway, my thoughts on that. It's it's great questions. It's not easy questions. It's difficult questions. 
but I think a lot of us wrestle with them and I think it's worth really taking some time to contemplate our relationship with those questions and w- what are we doing? What What is our persuasion, our perspective on unity? Am I trying to demand things go my way? Am I trying to demand that I can just kind of do my own thing? Because neither of those are a gospel-centered, biblical approach to life. The question is, Am I seeking after Jesus and am I willing to defer to others? And do I care about other people? Do I see them as having the spirit within them as well and deferring? Okay, this is my opinion, but man, it looks like, you know, it looks like several others believe it that way. Maybe I shouldn't make a big fuss about it, but rather consider that a valid option, a valid opinion. Because otherwise we'll have mass chaos, right? And we may as well leave and join a church that we can submit and follow. And so I think I think a lot of this comes back to, do I trust? Do I trust my other brothers and sisters? Do I trust my leaders? If we're in leadership, do I trust my fellow members? Because I think a lot of church breakdown is a result of broken trust. Is one of the things.